0: What you are, basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric
1: and structure of existence... Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. This is episode number 39 and tonight I've got a fantastic episode for you. I'm chatting with my good friend Rick Moon from TNT Radio Live. For those that follow my geopolitical and financial analysis over on the Parallel Systems broadcast, you'll probably know that I've been on Rick Moon's TNT radio show many, many times. In fact, I'm on almost monthly and we have a great rapport And Rick is a really smart guy. He's been around the block. He knows what's up in terms of the financial system and I think he's got a pretty good idea of the kind of battle that we are now in. In fact, I did an episode previously with Rick called Entering End Times and that's precisely how Rick frames this, that we are in End Times. Now, the reason I invited Rick back on was not to talk about End Times again. It was, in fact, to talk about the Christian Virtue of charity now don't let that put you off if you're not a christian it doesn't actually matter which denomination or faith you are i actually am very well educated in buddhism and buddhism has the same vein of charity running throughout it and you know i think most religions do however i would say that in the modern era in this age of narcissism and i'm not just talking about the materialistic side of life i'm also talking about something that i call spiritual narcissism because i think there's a lot of that out there Me and Rick actually talk about this in tonight's episode and you see this in a lot of people who go to India to retreats and they travel the world and they do ayahuasca ceremonies and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with exploring one's spirituality. However, I think in the modern era it's being commoditized and unknowingly for many it's just become another expression of materialism. And narcissism or meism, in that it focuses purely on oneself, on my needs, on my past, on my salvation, on my trauma. However, what's often missing is the most fundamental piece. What many people say is at the very core, the very foundations of Christianity, and that is charity. Charity. What does that mean? Well, it means taking care of other people, putting other people's needs first, not oneself sacrificing for others. So I wanted to talk to Rick about this because Rick is a Christian and he has also done a lot of work in his life as a missionary. So I thought he'd be the perfect person to get back on to talk about the universal virtue of charity. So in part one I discussed with Rick his missionary work and how he came to be the person he is today because Rick will admittedly tell you himself that he was on the wrong path for many years but he managed to find some source of salvation. And put himself on the right track and then he became a missionary then in part two for members of on parallelmight.com, we talk about charity from a more philosophical and spiritual perspective in that we go into the philosophy that underlies charity and why it's so damn important why we need to get it back at the heart of living and if we do that maybe we can turn this thing around maybe we can take ourselves at least individually and in terms of our family to a far better place and we do talk a lot about relationships And Rick talks about his wife, I talk about my wife, and how we can foster better relationships with our loved ones so i think going into christmas it's the perfect time to have this discussion so members please head over to parallelmite.com to listen to the full episode if you're not a member yet please consider coming to join us it's the perfect time we've got quite a lot of episodes over there now and the forum's starting to liven up too we've got an introduction section so if you want to join a community that's the perfect place to do it because we're all in this together and we're all trying to achieve the same thing so i'd love to see you over there in closing thank you so much for listening i hope you're all well healthy and reasonably happy and i hope to see you all in the next one hi everybody welcome to the parallel mic podcast i'm here with good friend and host of locked and loaded on tnt radio live it's rick munn thanks so much for joining us rick we've spoken many times this year but it's always the other way around it's me speaking to you so i had to get you back on i need to grill you i need to find out what you're thinking so how's it going buddy
0: it's going good, and I'm glad to be back here again. I don't feel any pressure. I feel I don't know what you're going to ask me. And, uh, you know, just go with the flow. Uh, shoot the breeze and uh, play it fast and loose and see where this one ends up. But I'm glad to be back again, and thank you very much for the invite to come back
1: again. Yeah, well, cheers, Vic. The last time you was on, it was a really popular show. A completely different conversation we're going to be having today. We spoke about end times and listeners. That's number episode number eight, but you'll find it's called Entering End Times with Rick Moon and today we're going to be talking about something entirely different we want to talk about charity actually the christian virtue of charity and i do want to talk about it from a spiritual perspective and i couldn't have thought of anyone better to have this conversation with because you have actually spent a lot of your life doing missionary work and doing charity so I thought that's what we'd talk about going into Christmas, especially it's always on my mind thinking about charity. But before we do that, Rick, let's just have a quick discussion on 2023. What a year. And you are on the front lines. You do a fantastic radio show for TNT. And essentially, you just live this, don't you? You Whatever's happening in the world, you're talking about it on that show. So you really are on the front lines, similar to me. You don't really switch off. And before we had this uh, conversation, we both spoke about how difficult it's been for us both to switch off because this is our life now. So, just tell me a little bit about how the year's gone from your perspective, Rick.
0: Well, it's been pretty intense. Uh, it's been one thing after another, and as you say, because of the type of the job that I'm doing at the minute, I, I find it very, very hard to switch off. And tying it in with the theme of today, you know, which is uh, it's going to be a bit, a little bit about the Kingdom of God, I would think, and spirituality. I feel. Being honest and being open with you, the last uh, few years, my spiritual walk has been really uh, crippled to a greater degree because my focus has switched more on the things of the world rather than the things of the spirit by nature of the fact of the job that I do so I'm having I'm having a period of reflection at the minute I'm really going to have to rebalance myself I mean anyone that says they have it right all the time and they've got the balance right all the time is a liar and I think it's important to be honest with ourselves and say well you know what looking back at the way I was two to three years ago physically, mentally, spiritually financially I'm in a worse or a better off position now if you're in a better position keep doing what you're doing if you feel that you're suffering somehow you're sliding you need to recalibrate again so for me you know because it's day in and day out five days a week you know don't really stop at the weekends either I'm always checking out what's going on in the world the things of the flesh rather than uh, keeping up to date with the things of the spirit which I was doing uh, religiously, no pun intended, before all this shenanigans started three odd years ago. So I'm in a, I'm in a funny position at the minute. I think I'm suffering personally, uh, spiritually, because of the amount of time and effort I'm dedicating to the things of the world. But I'm going to rebalance that even uh, after this show's over. It's going to be done.
1: Yeah, you know, it resonates a lot what you're saying, Rick, because I've had the same experience too. I feel like most of my time now is taken. And when I do have some free time, My mind's still there. It's very hard to switch off, and that's something you mentioned before the show. But maybe you could tell listeners, Rick, a little bit about your own background and trajectory. You are known today as a voice of the people. You speak out on TNT Radio. Before that, you were speaking out on Twitter. And what an interesting trajectory you've had because, you know, you really did put yourself out there during COVID, potentially potentially destroyed your career because everyone who spoke out did potentially destroy their career. We all knew what we was doing. And then you got this opportunity to become a spokesperson, a radio host. And I'd say you are the best out there. There's no one better than you for radio hosting. You are fantastic. But having said that, Rick, that wasn't your background. And you had a whole life before this. So I just want to take listeners back to the early part of your life because you did have a very strong spiritual component, as you still do. But you was actually doing missionary work, wasn't you?
0: Yeah, I was. And thank you very much for your kind words as well. By the way, I don't really see myself as any kind of a radio host. I just talk to people like I'm doing with you now. And I very believe, I very much believe in being spontaneous and letting things flow much the same way as you do these podcasts, which is why I like listening uh, to your podcast, Johnny, L's podcast as well. Very easy to listen to uh, because they're serious, uh, they're concise, but at the same time, they're organic and they're fluid. So I appreciate uh, your kind words in that respect. Before I... Um, uh started off in TNT, which would have been uh, January 2022, coming up in two years. Before that, I spent 11 years in the Northern Ireland Housing Executive in the finance department of their homeless department. It was a desk job. Uh, while I was there, uh, even just before I started there in around about 2010, um, I was a financial advisor, financial planner for a very large Uh, multinational uh, corporation. I was an independent financial advisor. And before that, I was a civil servant. Uh, After I got out of university, I spent 18 months in the civil service. But it was around 2007. uh, It was 2007, November the 2nd, 2007, to be specific. uh, I did my first overseas uh, trip to Kenya. Uh, I'll tell you why. I, I don't know how structured you want to make this, but I'd been a Christian for nine years, right? A born again Christian for nine years, and I evaluated myself a little bit like I'm evaluating myself today, thinking I'm going off the road a little bit. Back then, I evaluated myself and said I've done nothing, nothing, for the kingdom of God in the nine years since I've been a Christian. I've went to church, I've tithe,d and paid money into the collection plate. I sing the hymns, you know. I go to the prayer meetings. I read my Bible, but I haven't actually done anything for the kingdom of God. It's just been you know, box ticking exercises, you know, a, a nominal Christian, a pew warmer, if you want to call it that. And that really troubled me. That troubled me because I thought someday I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account of my life and the talents that he has gave me. And if I was to do that today, I wouldn't have much to say to him. It would be a blank CV for me as a, as a, as a Christian. So in May 07, I started to pray and I said, God, I, I think I can talk all right, I know you've given me a gift to be able to communicate and talk. I would like to speak your word. I'd like to preach, all right? But I had it in my head that it was going to be in Northern Ireland. It would be, you know, in local local places. That's what I thought in my head. And for months, nothing happened. And then there was a little fellowship that I attended, a little fellowship that was in a converted pig shed, okay, in the middle of nowhere in the countryside. And there was a little group of believers there, and they were organizing a trip overseas. And one of them said, "Look, there's four of us, uh, five women and one man going to Kenya, and we need another man." And there was a woman sat behind me. Her name was Christine, and she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, "Son, I think that's for you." And I I looked at her and I said, "Well, I don't, okay." And then the next week the same thing happened. Another appeal, "A son," I said, "No, it's not for me. I don't feel I don't feel called to go to Kenya." And then the third week, they were up making one last appeal, and they said, look, we're not going to dig wells, we're not going to build schools, we're going to speak. And then the penny dropped with me, I'd been praying for an opportunity to speak God's word, and I'd been looking for an open door and hadn't seen one, and then one had been set in front of me here, but it wasn't for what I believed, or the place that I wanted to go, but that's what you learn about God, it's not about what you want. It's not about what you want to go. It's not about what you want to say. It's not about what you want to do. It's about what he wants you to do. So begrudgingly, uh, I agreed to go. And uh, it was a tough uh, decision to make because it was all alien to me. I'd never done it before. I was leaving home. I had a small daughter. My my little girl was just born. I was self-employed. I had to go away, take time off work, get all these injections that nurses told me that I needed. But that was how it started. It was a conviction that I had done nothing. And even then, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just knew I had to become more active for the kingdom. And I thought, I believe the Spirit was uh, prompting me, the Holy Spirit was prompting me to speak the word of God. So the opportunity came and I took it. That was 07. And then I was coming and going. Ever since then, uh, from 07 up until 2018, I took a year off because I was still working full time and I I took time off up to four times a year, leave, paid, leave, all my holidays went, traveling overseas, preaching the gospel, prison ministry, radio ministry, blah, 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 and then uh, I stopped it for a break and await and then the pandemic came and everything shut down and I haven't been back since.
1: Yeah, and you became a preacher of a different sort, Rick, and I think That's one of the reasons why people have been drawn to you is because you've got that capacity to speak to them on a spiritual level, whether they know it or not. I think a lot of people probably don't, but I think there's an energy there that is picked up subconsciously by people and probably the same with me too. That's oftentimes when people say why I listen to you is because you speak to me on a different level. Sometimes, not all the time. Sometimes I'm just sat there cracking silly jokes, Rick, and I think I'm funny, but I'm probably not. And sometimes we just need a bit of comedy, too. But I do think people are searching for meaning right now. But just before we get too fine to the missionary work, what was you like before that, Rick? Like, what was you like growing
0: up? Did you, did you have a strong streak of empathy in you? I wish I, wish, I wish I could lie and say, yeah, I was always a caring, empathetic person. But I wasn't. Uh, I, I was and still am a very self-centered, selfish, surly uh, isolated individual. Uh, that ha- that element to me hasn't changed. But when I see someone now that is struggling, and I see someone that's broken, uh, not everyone, but some people really strike a chord with me, right? And it re- and I just feel compelled to do things for certain people. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to rationalize it. Some people, not all. I just I'm drawn to. Or they're drawn to me, or I'm drawn to them like iron filings to a magnet. I have to do something about it. So, before uh, all this started, when I was young and growing up, you know, a teenager and whatnot, I was horrible. I was an extremely nasty piece of work. Uh, when I got saved or became a Christian on the 10th of March 1998, I did change to become a better person in inverted commas, in that I wasn't so ignorant. I wasn't so rude. I didn't swear so much. I, I suppose I improved somehow but I still wasn't really being effective. I wasn't really affecting change in people's lives. And, you know, I suppose you could say I kept my light under a bushel and uh, I just uh, put all my time and energy into myself until around about uh, 2007 when this uh, whole business started. Then that changed me completely.
1: Yeah, I could quite easily foresee how we could be sat in a prison cell together having this conversation, Rick. I think both of us at certain times in our lives could have probably gone down a path that would have led to a, really vastly different outcome. Uh, My life was certainly not set up for me to succeed. It was set up for me to probably end up in a similar situation to my father, who spent most of his life in prison. But what actually happened was I became somebody who tried to support people like you did. Uh, You did your missionary work. You actually spoke in prisons, you said. I worked for charities. But I want to go back to the missionary work. Africa is not something that, I mean, I've never been to Africa. It's a completely alien culture to me. The only thing I know about Africa is what I'm told on the on the TV or in history books. What was it like for you as a missionary going out there? And what did you expect before you went? And what was it like when you actually got there?
0: Well, you know, this title missionary, there was a quote from a, from someone who once said that if, if you're called to be a missionary, don't lower your standards to become a king, right? So in other words, to me, in my eyes, and I'm not, I was a part-timer, listen, at best. I only went in my spare time. There's people that have sacrificed their lives, their careers, their families, everything they have that gives them comfort to leave home, to go out into the mission field and literally live and die in the mission field, completely dedicated to serving God. And I have nothing but the highest form of respect for those people. David Livingstone, if you've never read uh, the life story of David Livingstone and the everyone against, that was one of the things that drove me out there. I thought, my Lord, when I looked at his life and what he did, And the way he died (laughs) and uh, how he died. Oh, man, it's giving me goose pimples just thinking about it. He was super inspirational. So if you want to get a flavor, read about uh, David Livingstone, uh, famous Scottish missionary. But anyway, uh, I, I found it when I got there. I instantly... I mean, instantly fell in love with it. There's nothing about it that could have prepared me for the culture shock, the people, the atmosphere, the temperature, the climate, the food, everything. And it was so alien to my uh, life in Northern Ireland. I couldn't have prepared myself for it. But when I got there on my first trip, I arrived in Kenya for the first time in the second of November 2007, instantly knew that this was somewhere that I should be and should be functioning. And before I left, I was there for 10 days on the first trip. And on my last day there, I drank a bottle of Coca-Cola, a small bottle of Coca-Cola. And on the, the neck of the Coca-Cola bottle, there was a date, which was the 2nd of November 2008, which was exactly a year since I would have arrived there for the first time. And I said to the guy that was with me, my guide, I says, before this Coca-Cola expires, the best before date, I will be back in Africa again and I was not once but twice and over another uh, two different countries as well so I just I had it I I just felt a real uh, drawing to the place I felt that was that was where I should be. It's really interesting you know
1: 2nd of November 2008 that was right about the time the global financial system was collapsing too so It's strange that you saw that date around then, because the world was really going through some profound shifts. And I guess you could have easily been drawn into that. You was working in finance. I'm guessing you had an eye to at least some of what was going on. And yet your focus had now been directed towards your missionary work. And uh, how did the people receive you there, Rick, as a white person, as somebody that's completely alien to them? Did they see you as some kind of savior type figure? Was there suspicion? What was it like from their perspective?
0: Uh, All of the above, really. Uh, To be honest, uh, a lot of white missionaries that go to short-term mission trips in Africa, they're not really taken very seriously by the natives over there, if the truth be told. It's like, okay, here's another group of people from another church. They've all got their T-shirts on. They're staying for 10 days. They're in a best bed and breakfast. They're not staying with us in our houses. They're not eating our food. They're not crapping down a hole. They're on a toilet. They say they love us and then they never come back again. Okay. So that is generally the way that it is for short-term mission trips coming from uh, white evangelical churches in the West. So on the first sweep, on the first time that I was there, I was probably not taken very seriously. I was a little bit like a clown. I mean, we even tried to dress up like Maasai people and I'm a short fat Irish man I'm not a tall six foot seven slender Maasai warrior I shouldn't have been wearing Maasai clothes but the, the team leader thought that that would be a good idea a good way to bond with the people I don't think it worked but what I did do was I started to pick up a uh, Kiswahili. I started to teach myself immediately the native language and when I started to try and speak their language that endeared me to absolutely everybody that I spoke to and broke down so many barriers and opened so many doors so I spent the first 10 days there intensively learning basic Kiswahili phrases that endeared me to the people that I was working with just as a way to break down barriers and make them more receptive to other things that I would say so it was a it was a big culture shock the first time that I went.
1: Yeah, it's no different today. Yeah, I found the same thing in Poland. You, I've always, when you go somewhere new, going to be trapped with suspicion. You know, I I treat someone with suspicion, like I think you would too, especially in these times that we find ourselves in. But if somebody speaks the language or at least tries, that's like the gateway to communication and communication is the gateway to affection you know I can't feel affection towards somebody if I don't understand them uh, I'll probably feel a bit bit worried about them in fact so yeah I think you did it and you did actually learn to speak Swahili didn't you Rick I mean I saw a video that you shared with me of you preaching uh, I don't know what you it was maybe you can tell me but you was actually speaking their language it wasn't in English
0: yeah that was back in uh, that video clip was from 2000 and 12 i think or 2013 i can't remember somewhere in and around that time but yeah i i, I bought a textbook uh, it was called Simplified Swahili by a man by the name of Peter Wilson. And on the back cover, I'll never forget it. It's it, it was a complete lie. i said if you spend an hour a day studying the contents of this book within two months, you will have mastered the language. And believe me, I spent, uh, actually, while I was still working for the housing executive, uh, I was moved offices for about six months and I basically did no work for them. I had my textbook with me. I had loads of A4 uh, refill books. Paths, and i spent learning by rote verbs noun classes phrases sentences bible verses everything really immersed myself into speaking the language and then within two years of starting to study it alone uh, i was able to uh, preach without an interpreter using swahili in a uh, kenyan marketplaces and i transcribed bible verses into swahili and used to get uh, gospel cards printed up so instead of You know, I I did a lot of analysis. What's the most effective way to use any money that I have? Because I wasn't really getting a lot of funding, if any at all, from uh, various groups. It started off that I did, but then it it fizzled out to nothing. So then it became very important to make the best of the money. So instead of buying, for example, 10 Bibles, uh, and let's face it, if you have a Bible in your house, you probably don't read it that much and you probably haven't read at all, but it's there. I found it was better to take uh, print 7,000 Little uh, gospel cards, little business cards, front and back with key gospel verses and hand out 7,000 of those than it would have been, for example, to hand out uh, 10 Bibles. And, of course, it was in their language as well. I transcribed it into Swahili. And then when they received it, they really valued it because they said, well, the, the Mzungu, the white man, has given me the word of God uh, in my own language, which is Kiswily. so it was powerful. And actually, I actually visited several places years apart, and some people produced the original gospel card that had given them from, what, five years, ten years before, filthy but still in their pockets, and they still kept it in their pockets that day. Many people said, I remember you. I remember you were here before. I remember you giving me a card. Powerful stuff.
1: It is powerful stuff. Yeah, you actually reminded me of something that happened recently, but I think I might Save that one for part two I guess one of the questions that I had uh, just for my own interest in what you was doing is when you got there to do that missionary work Rick what are you actually engaging is it just preaching is it helping out in communities like how does it how how did it go for you and the team that you was on?
0: Okay, well, to start off with, uh, we were visiting various churches, very safe, playing it safe, visiting churches, being hosted, you know, getting up and singing a song or sharing a Bible verse and doing whatever, which is great, uh, because at the end of the day, the Word of God is the Word of God. But after my first trip, I realized that I wanted to do more off-track stuff and uh, more, how would you say... Daring stuff, uh, getting out into the bushes, uh, going going alone on the trips instead of with a group and uh, meeting someone at the airport and then just going into the bush, doing whatever uh, happened or whatever came before us. So it did start off uh, from an evangelical preaching uh, perspective, but then uh, we started, get, well, I was moved to start getting involved in some building projects uh, building toilet blocks, uh, building school classrooms. And then there was a project called Jericho Springs that started off, uh, which was to help children with congenital birth defects, uh, club Clubfoot, spina bifida and cleft palate uh, to get surgeries to help them uh, to be reintegrated back into the community again. So for a long time we identified or I tried to identify some kids and get them operated on. And I, uh, it was just club feet. We never got any spina bifida kids or cleft palate kids, but it was just club feet kids. Then that led to other things. And then we did radio ministry. And then, you know, it went on and on from that. So it was very uh, organic. We just, if we saw a problem, we tried to deal with it if we could. And uh, then that maybe presented other problems that we might have dealt with. And then we did. So it just one thing led to another.
1: What about back in the UK, Rick? What was life like for you back there? Was you engaged in anything back in uh, Ireland? Uh, is, it, is it Northern Ireland where you are, Rick?
0: Yeah, it's Northern Ireland. It's all Ireland, you know, but uh, there's a border separating the north and the south on paper anyway, but I live up in the north just outside of Belfast. But no, I couldn't get, uh, I wanted to do the same thing over here. No one would host me. No one wanted me to speak at their churches. I volunteered. Uh, there's a prison in Northern Ireland called MacGabrie prison, which at one stage was the worst rated prison in the United Kingdom. More mental health crises, more staff crises, more violence than anywhere else in the UK. It was only uh, four miles from my house. And I remember contacting, I phoned the governor up and I said, look, I wanna come up and volunteer. I'll come up 24 seven at any time of day or night for free. And I'll help out, I'll help with counselling, I'll help. No, didn't even get through the door. In McGabry Prison. The governor then died. All right. And then the next guy came along and tried him. And he said, Yeah, I'll pass your details on to our chaplaincy. They never got back to me either. So there was a prison in crisis on my doorstep four miles from home, that I was prepared to go into and do whatever they wanted me to, not what I wanted to do, what they wanted me to do. And absolutely, they, I couldn't get anywhere. And no one wanted to hear me talking. They thought it was a bit crazy and a bit of a firebrand, maybe a bit of a maverick. I don't know. But if I wanted to do this business, I had to go to Africa. I was not uh, accepted in my own country.
1: That's outrageous, but um, having spent my entire career working for charities, I am not surprised at all. It is a, it's a big business, it's institutionalized and it's highly controlled, highly controlled and you have to work within very strict structures. I had my eyes open from working in these places, you know. I, I was so naive, I thought, charities, oh God, everyone's a do-gooder, everyone's going to want to help. That's the place for me. And then when I got inside some of them, Uh, i really had that veil lifted from my eyes Uh, the first place i worked for one of the largest charities in the uk awful awful just a business just absolutely run like a business i had a good experience in the second one spent most of my career in one position the moment i moved from that i found the same thing again it was the same business mentality in fact i actually had a manager call children children rick who are from broken homes and are in the fostering system business she called them business that was her expression her term Well, we need more business and these children are business. And I was like, wow, you know, how heartless is that? So that was my experience. But one of the things you mentioned there was about prison. And I've been on the other side of that. My dad was in prison my entire childhood. And I used to go see him up and down the country uh, in different prisons. And the best experiences I ever had in prison was in a certain prison where you had a charity. It was two women from the local church. And they voluntarily set up a little tuck shop there which sounds really meager. They set up a tuck shop, they got a toasty maker so you could have some hot food, uh, hot coffee. Now, most prisons, it was just a a vending machine, the type you'd get in a swimming bath, so you could get a chocolate bar. But I'll tell you what, Rick, that little tuck shop, that made that more of a family experience. And I've got so many good memories of that prison because of that volunteering. And God, those women probably don't know just how, how much impact they had on families. You know, to have a normalized experience, some warm food with somebody that you see in a prison environment, you know, that changed everything. So it's actually really sad to hear that you tried to actually get in a prison to do something and it was rejected because I think it's the small things that count in life. It's the small stuff that really changes things.
0: Yeah. I had no trouble getting into the Ugandan prison. I mean, all the, all the preaching I've done and, crusades and concerts that have done in prisons in Africa all took place pretty much in Uganda with a couple of exceptions in Kenya. I was in um, what was the name? Langada Women's Prison in Jamhuri Roman Prison in Kenya but I've visited dozens of prisons in Uganda and again that seemed to be a hot spot for me and why prison ministry? I don't know. I just feel attracted to that environment the prison environment, the men that are in there. I don't know what it is. I wish you could say I understood it but I don't but I just felt this compulsion to go into the prisons. And initially, when I went there, I tried to bring in, you know, a little bit of soap and toothpaste because these dudes don't have any sanitary. Uh, where the women don't have any sanitary products during their time in the month. They've got no uh, sanitary pads. Uh, some of them have kids that are living in the prisons with them up until they're three years of age. They were maybe pregnant when they were arrested. The kid lives in that environment too. For men in, in Luzera prison and. Uganda, it's the biggest maximum security prison in East Africa, if you can imagine, uh, look at your index finger when you're uh, admitted there you're given a piece of soap the size of your index finger and that has to last you for six months, that's to clean your body and your clothes of which you get a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and if they're ragged and hanging off you don't get them replaced some of the guys are walking around their butt naked, so it's a very harsh environment but yet one that I felt uh, I was extremely Drawn to. So, uh, like yourself, I've had probably my most powerful spiritual experiences in Ugandan prisons over anywhere else that I've been in anywhere else in the world and anything else that I've done for the kingdom of God. I've had some unreal uh, experiences in Ugandan prisons, so much so that when I left some of them and the, the big gates closed behind me and I was out into the free world again, I was highly depressed highly depressed. I wanted nothing more than to be back inside those walls and behind those gates and behind those bars in the cells with those men, again, worshiping and and uh, expounding the word of God M- mega experiences, but yeah, never got that over here. No, I couldn't even get in the door, let alone do any of that stuff. Yeah, that That's
1: shocking. It really is shocking. And uh, I think as we talk more about charity, and particularly the weaponization of charity and charities, the institutions which have been highly weaponized over the past. Well, I think actually, I think it's always been that way, but we're seeing it up close and personal right now with the uh, LGBTQI plus agenda being pushed on kids. Uh, I saw a guy on Twitter. He used to work for NSPCC's Childline, uh, and he spoke out against this really strong push when vulnerable kids who are maybe being abused or neglected are calling up for support. And having this nonsense pushed on them down the phone and he raised the alarm bells. He said, listen, I I think just affirming children who are being given all of this elsewhere and then they're calling us up and we're just affirming it. That's dangerous. Like that's really dangerous. Uh, And he got kicked out. He got kicked out. Absolutely despicable what's happening. So there is a weaponization of charities. So I'm not surprised you struggled to get into them because maybe you just didn't fit the model, Rick. Maybe you didn't wave the right flag or have the right uh, credentials in their eyes. Yeah, it could
0: have been. Uh, this, uh, admittedly, this was before all the woke stuff came about. As I say, we're going back to two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I just don't know what it is, man. But sometimes, uh, when you're trying to do the right thing, uh, you can challenge people, not directly, but indirectly by your actions. That are looking at things as a business. You hit the nail on the head there. You said about adoption. Uh, people say we need to bring in more business. You know, they were in the business of adopting children, in this case, the one that you mentioned. So some people adopt children because of a love for children. Some people may not. They may adopt children because of a love for money or it brings them in, you know, they can quit a job and they can look after kids and get paid handsomely to do it. Who knows the motivation behind people? But if you're doing it for the right reasons and you come up alongside somebody who's doing it for the wrong reasons... I think it causes them to become convicted and they realize that they're just in the people trafficking business effectively and it can cause them to be uncomfortable. So when you're doing things right and you're doing things with a pure heart and a pure motive, you will unsettle and make uncomfortable those who are doing the same work, but for the wrong reasons, okay? And that's another thing that I'm just, this is just my own experience. Maybe I'm unique here, but yeah, that's been the the way of it. Ever since I stepped out and tried to do this business, God knows he's my witness today. I've always had the right motive when I've been doing it, but yet I've always been met by opposition, none more so than the so-called Christian church. Satanists, witch doctors, Muslims, atheists, never had any problem with any of them. My only source of opposition and antagonism has came from within the so-called body of Christ. That's just my experience. And I don't believe those people that were doing that were genuine believers. I think they were there, uh, pew warmers, or they were there to tick the, the virtue signaling boxes. That's just my experience.
1: Well, it's mine too, Rick. It's mine too. And uh, funnily enough, what you just said there, uh, that that place that I told you about, that called Children Business, that place actually was a, was a cesspool. It was really bad. Uh, And like you said, if you were trying to do things right, it would horrify you to see certain things going on. You say, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to put children at risk. I'm not going to break the rules just to cover your back. No, like there's a right way to do this. There's a safe way. uh, And they don't want to hear that. So then you become uh, you're at loggerheads with them then. And I actually was a whistleblower at that place. And geez, you try whistleblowing for somewhere like that. Your life's going to get really dark really quickly because they will come down on you. They'll try and get rid of you. They ain't going to try and fix the problem. They're going to try and fix you because you're the problem in their eyes, not what's going on there. Uh, And that was about two or three years of my life, but I'm not going to make it about me or that situation. But yes, that's how it really is. At the top levels of these places, they ain't looking to help people. Maybe you'll find some great people in there. And usually it does always come down to if you find a good manager and a good team, they'll kind of create this culture that really does care and they'll bring people in that care. But these days it's hard to find I've got to say uh, but going back to you Rick and your missionary work because I don't want to get too waylaid uh, how did your wife and family feel about this about your trips abroad I mean is your wife uh, is she she got the same faith as you is she interested in yes. what you're
0: interested in She had, well, if she didn't, I dare say I couldn't have done it. And by that, what I mean is, you know, she couldn't physically stop me from doing this. She couldn't physically stop me if I wanted to go and do this, if I really wanted to. But if I didn't have her support, which I did right from day one, I couldn't have went there with a clean conscience. And I couldn't have went there against her will, doing something that she was patently against that I believed I was crusading and doing the right thing for it would have caused a lot of friction, both when I was away from home and then when I came back home. From uh, the mission field again. So yes, to answer your question, she has the same faith as I do. Uh, She got saved around about 1999. Uh, I was 1998. So she actually uh, it was ironic because when we started going out together, I was like the devil and she was like an angel. And if you'd have been uh, putting money on who would convert to Christianity first, trust me, Mike, if you're a gambling man, you wouldn't have bet any money on me. Whatsoever, but yet that's how it panned out. Uh, so, yeah, she supported me 100% all along. And in fact, to be honest with you, uh, she has challenged me a lot. Um, I'll g- i'll give you an example because people might be sitting thinking, well, well, how can I do stuff like that? Or, you know, you must be super gifted or really uh, sacrificial doing this. I-, I wasn't, and I'm not. I was convicted by the words of others. So, for example, uh, I came home from a trip in 2008. And it was around about christmas time i remember it well And it was christmas eve and i had my laptop open and i just uploaded a load of photographs onto my laptop uh, from various places that i'd been and one of them was a little school in the middle of nowhere at that time i didn't even know where the place was uh, in the bush in western province of kenya there was a kid sitting there and she had these horribly twisted feet and uh, none of the other kids would sit beside her or touch her because they believed she was cursed. And uh, I showed my wife this picture and I said, isn't that awful? They won't touch her and, you know, no one's helping her. And Christmas Eve, my wife said to me, we'll do something about it. Right. <laughs> That was what she said. Do something about it. <laughs> and then, the, then the excuses came out. She said, well, what do you want me to do? I'm Belfast. I don't even know the name of that girl. I don't even know the name of the village. I don't even know what to do if I get back there. She said, stop talking. Do something. So within three weeks, January, I had flights booked to go back to Kenya with the sole purpose of tracking this kid down again. I didn't know her name. I had a rough idea where she was. It turned out her name was Mary Wanjala, and she was in a little uh, hole-in-the-hedge village called Sokomoko up in the western province, Luya territory in western Kenya. And to cut a long story short, uh, we did track that girl down. We did find her. We did take her uh, to an orthopedic hospital called Kijabe in Nairobi. She got her feet straightened out, and she was accepted back into the community again. And just last week, Funnily enough, the girl, the lady that was handling her, her name is uh, Rosemary uh, Wafula, she sent me a picture of her. She's just graduated uh, high school in Kenya with this huge smile on her face. But when we found her, my friend, it was it was horrendous. But that was all from my wife, just literally saying to me, do something about it. Stop talking, do it. Oh, what can I do? I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I can't find her. I've just came home. I'm tired. It's winter time. Blah, 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 blah. Excuse, excuse, excuse. If you want to get something done, just do it. Take a step out in faith. And as you go, the way will be opened up before you. And then that led to another kid and another one and another one and so on and so forth. So that's, that's how that all evolved. Just my wife saying, do something. That was it. Not, she didn't pray. She didn't give me a Bible verse. She just looked at me and said, we'll do something. That was it. That was what spurred me into action. So I wish you could say it was spiritual and I saw angels and, you know, a halo of light appearing around the head. But it didn't happen that way. It's just a conviction. Do something about it.
1: As an athlete, I used to say, like, an ounce of action is worth a, a ton of theory. An ounce of action is worth a ton of theory. Somebody would say to me, what about this? What about this technique? What about these shoes on and on and on? And you get it today with finance on and on. What about? What about? What about? I just say, take some damn action. And that'll lead to the next step. It's like it's like there's curtains in front of you. You got to go through one, then you'll find another, then you'll find another. But you know, the way reveals itself slowly. So uh, I'm I'm glad you said that because I think that's a really important point
0: for listeners too. When you feel stuck, you need to do something. You have to do something. And listen, what's the worst that can happen? You can fail. And if you fail, at least you've tried to do something. And at least you've probably taken some life experience from your failure. Too many people, Mike, are afraid to fail or afraid of embarrassment or afraid of humiliation. Like the first time I preached in a marketplace in Kenya, speaking in my head, I only wanted to speak using Swahili. I was the only white guy there. Everyone was staring at me, you know, public speaking, everyone's staring at you, only this time they're all black and they're all West Kenyan and they all don't speak your language. And you're standing slap bang in the middle of them with lorries going past and kids screaming, no microphone at the top of your voice, trying to communicate in their language. And I thought, what's the worst that can happen? They'll laugh at me, they'll scorn me. But you know what? The opposite happens. The thing that you're afraid of is usually the thing that moves you onto the next level. So I would encourage anyone that's listening today, if you're hesitant about doing something that you feel in your heart is the right thing to do, just do it. Don't worry about failure. Don't worry about humiliation. Don't worry about what people will say, because even if you're a success, people will still criticize you and slag you off and run you into the ground, whether you succeed or fail. So you might as well do it on your own terms. Uh, There's one last thing I'll say about my wife, if you don't mind. Sometimes she goes a little bit ahead of me behind my back. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. This is a miracle story. So I mentioned David Livingstone earlier on, right? And I heard about him through an American preacher who came to a church I was attending in Belfast. And this American preacher's name was Bill Wilson. And he is running the biggest uh, kids outreach in the world right now. It's called Metro World Child. And he was based in Brooklyn in New York. And I went to see him and there was about 3,000 people in this church. And he really, he really impacted me, man. He really convicted me that I was lazy and I wasn't really doing much for the kingdom. Then he talked about Livingston and then I read about Livingston and I thought, I have to do more. And then uh, in April of 8, I came back from a trip. and I remember it, it was a Sunday night and I was sitting alone in the living room and I was saying... You know, imagine I said to you, Mike, if you could meet anyone in the world, anybody in the world, your idol, your hero, your inspiration, and spend two or three hours with them with no distractions, no mobile phones, nobody cutting in, who would you pick? You, you know, you could maybe a great boxer. Maybe, I don't know who it would be. But for me, my person that I wanted to sit with alone more than anybody in the world was this guy, Bill Wilson. He was inspiring me beyond belief. And I remember I was sitting, at prayed inside in that living room. I said, God, I don't know how, I don't know what's going to be possible, but I would love to spend an hour alone with Bill Wilson and just ask him how he did what he's doing and how he keeps motivated, you know, things like that. So anyway, my wife came into the room and I told her what I'd just prayed. And she said, well, let's see what happens. I kid you not. The next day, my mobile phone rang. <laughs> And uh, this lady was on the phone said, is this Rick Mung? I said, yes, this is me. She said, hi, my name's Jeanine Janine Stellatos. I am the director for UK Metro Ministries. Uh, I work with Bill Wilson. Do you know Bill Wilson? I said, yeah, damn right. I do. I think he's brilliant. I've read his books. He's incredible. I said, right. Well, congratulations. You've won the prize. And I said, what what prize? And he said, there's a prize, a competition we launched uh, last month to win lunch with Bill Wilson. Now, my wife entered me into that competition without telling me it a month previously. And the day after I prayed that I would meet this guy and spend an hour with him, the phone rang the next day to say he was coming to Northern Ireland, the little hotel in a place called Ballymena all the way from Brooklyn and New York. And Mike, it happened uh, two months later in May 2008. I sat as I hoped and prayed and dreamed for one-on-one with Bill Wilson. It, it didn't just happen once, but he came back two more times. And we sat three times in the course of a year and did what I believe was my heart's desire to get information and inspiration from this man. But again, if that my wife hadn't have entered that competition anonymously or at least put my name on it, I would never have met him. What do you think about that?
1: That's, that's, that's amazing. It's one of those events where when you hear it back, it's like the synchronicity that has to happen there for your wife to have done that. It's almost like she premeditated the future. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, I've had so many stories like that in my own life and I've had so many stories regaled to me, particularly over the last two years, three years of people that are seeing these things maybe for the first time in their life. But a lot of the people have said, no, my whole life, I've just had these synchronicities, these things happening. But I'll tell you what, Rick, it's always people who have orientated themselves towards something. Uh, And I always say to people, listen, those things exist. And those things are so meaningful when they happen. And it almost reaffirms all of your faith in something bigger than ourselves, that there is a creator and doesn't have to be the Christian God. You might have a different perspective altogether. That's fine. But it reaffirms that there's something else going on here, something energetic, something supernatural, supernatural. And when they happen, like, I just think, God, isn't that amazing? Like these things are unfolding. It's almost like there's an alchemy to life that's happening. And if you meet the right person, it almost, it it makes
0: it more potent. I think that's the key in chemistry. You know, there's a, there's a thing in chemistry called a catalyst. And if you add a catalyst to a chemical reaction, it speeds the reaction up or it makes it more intense. And there is absolutely no doubt about it that people can be catalysts, but They have to have the same mindset as you. For example, 99.9% of the people listening to this today have no clue who Bill Wilson is. And even if they did, they wouldn't have that deep desire to meet with him. But I did. And then when you put us both together, For an extended period of time, we actually fed off of each other and I left that even more invigorated and even more determined to carry on doing what I was doing because it was quite demoralizing. uh, Not really getting any support and people not really giving a damn about what you're trying to do. I wasn't doing it for acknowledgement or appreciation, but I mean, it was nothing. It was nothing at all. And I was so excited coming home going, man, you can't believe what I've just seen. Not what I've done. But what I've seen and the the miracles that I've seen, and no one's interested. No one wants to hear about them. And it it kind of deflates you a little bit. But when you find one man or one woman that is interested, then all of a sudden you dump that on them and they get inside it and they maybe go out and do things. So yes, if you mix the right, two people together the results can be real dynamite they can be real dynamite the bible talks about deep calling on the deep okay and as uh, iron sharpening iron so you have to make sure you get an iron to sharpen yourself against and if you're calling on to someone it has to be someone on a deep level or at least with the same mindset as you otherwise they'll just look at you as if you've got two heads
1: yeah and if you get the wrong person it can be a dynamite in another way rick and that's not the good way and I've i've seen that i've experienced that and i've seen that uh, and, you know, it is extremely strange. Uh, I do think that the Bible, when it it spoke about um, Adam and Eve and that chemistry between two, uh, that completes the whole. And when you get married and you put that, uh, hopefully, although today it's usually not a golden ring or a derivative of gold, because that's purity. It's love. It's meant to represent it. And when you do that in union, there's you and the other person and two become one. And then there's God as well. That's a part of that, this like extra element that comes into your life. And, you know, I took it really seriously when I got married to my wife. And, yeah, finding the right person to me. I always say to somebody, uh, if they're lost and confused, I say, focus actually on, fi- if you need something, focus on finding the right ally or person or partner in your life. Once that's out of the way, everything can get better. But if you get it wrong, everything can get worse too. So you got to be careful. And I, I don't think the modern world's set up for it either, is it, Rick? The modern world's actually set up to put us into terrible relationships that actually destroy our mental health and destroy our you know, I don't know, capacity to actually have true connection with one another, because they want you to go on uh, this kind of nihilistic bent of just sex, party, materialism, and make a relationship around that. And most people are, you know, most people are engaging from the very start of a relationship in those things. uh, And I don't think that's the way. And I always try and say, you know, get that bit right. And trust me, life will get so much damn better for you.
0: Oh, yeah. and uh, Even even when you do get it right, uh, let's be honest, it's still a struggle. Uh, You still have your ups and downs. You still go through your valleys of the shadow of death, as well as being on your mountains of transfiguration. That's even in a good, strong, uh, God-centered, Christ-believing marriage. You know, there's no marriage that doesn't go through its rough spells, uh, even the best of them. Uh, But I think if you look at the current divorce rates in the world at the moment, uh, and by the way, Listen, I'm not saying everybody has to run out and get married because some people marry the wrong person and they do it for pressure. Then they're stuck in a relationship for life with somebody that they maybe don't even love or that they're maybe you know tolerating at best and they're, the other person's tolerating them. And then you know if they have kids, then they grow up in a tense environment. And it's it can be very, very negative too. So I'm not saying that everyone needs to run out. Everyone needs to get married and live happily ever after. That's not what happens in the real world. However, the, the destruction and the disintegration of the family unit right across the world, uh, you know, is completely in line with the, the degradation of society period. And uh, so it's not always possible to grow up in a loving home with a married mom and dad, you know, for some people, it's you know that's a, like a lottery when other people live in hell growing up and it's better if their parents separate or maybe they would never got together in the first place. But what I'm saying is that if it's possible, as much as it's in people is, they should find someone that they know, love, honor, respect and uh, are in love with, marry that person and then try and raise a family in that environment if possible. If not, it's better, I would say, to remain single. And it's better not to just have kids for the hell of it, because then that just brings resentment and stress and, you know, all sorts of negativity that we're seeing in this generation that we're in at the minute. You know, it's it's horrible.
1: Yeah, I agree, Rick. Yeah, I think that's that's core to this place where we are now is that destruction of the family family unit. If you go back to the 1940s and 50s and people say, yeah, well you know, women were forced to stay in the marriage and they just had to get divorced. And it's like, yeah, maybe there's certainly an argument there. However, look at what's happened on the flip side of it. You know, we've gone completely so far the opposite direction that, you know, no one has that endurance and marriages, like you said, we're talking about the good times, but geez, there's a lot of difficult times in a marriage. You're going to have so many challenges and battles to fight. And, uh, I'm sure I've got plenty more to come, but you know, that, that, ease of destruction now it's just like oh just go tick a box and it's done you can get divorced there's no social stigma okay again people say well it was a bad thing but was it because how many of our grandparents Rick would have made it to 50 60 years if they haven't didn't have a culture that really tried to keep those things together because people still did get divorced back then it did still happen it's just socially it was not seen as the uh, done thing and they really tried to not have that happen, you know, to try and give you counseling or go to the church and speak to the priest, there'd be something, many layers to try and stop it, and, you know, I just think, yeah, that's a key part of where we are today, so you you can't have, you can't be mad at where we are today, and then <clears throat> you can't be mad at where we are today, and then see relationships as just this uh, spurious thing that can just be willy-nilly over here, over there, it doesn't matter, it's all free, no, I think that actually combined you have to have that conservative family values if you really want to get society
0: back on track You need grit. I mean, like you need grit and determination. Now, it's too easy these days to just throw in the towel. It's too easy uh, to just say, I've had enough. This isn't working. I'm out of here. I want to go and do something else without actually making any real effort to try and rectify what could be just a bad patch that you're going through. That could be because of you. It could be because of your partner. It could be a combination of both. Actually sitting down and working through things rather than just saying, well, I've had enough. I can't take this anymore here. You have the house. I'm out of here. Whatever it happens to be, there's no uh there's no perseverance anymore, or at least it's more rare these days than it was in the past. You and I talk about uh boxing uh matches a lot. We're both a fondness of, you know, mid-80s, uh, boxing, you know, Hearns, sugar ray leonard roberto duran marvin Hagler. you think about uh, roberto duran you think about how tough that guy was his name was hans of stone but yet in one of his matches he turned his back was it on hearns or uh sugar ray leonard and he just quit he just quit halfway through the the match and he just lost all his reputation and he lost everything just simply because he just said you know what i'm not doing this anymore i've had enough of this and again Who knows what was driving him there, but the point is he could have carried on. He could have given it a little bit more, but he just threw in the towel effectively, and that lost him a lot in people's eyes reputationally as well. And I think there's a lot of towel-throwing going in. And I'm not just talking about relationships here. I'm talking about jobs. I'm talking about... You know, efforts to stay healthy. I'm talking about efforts to get close to God. Oh, it's not working. I'm not getting anywhere. I quit. I quit. I'll start again in January. I'll start again on the 1st of January. No, you need to start today. You need to start addressing your shortcomings and your problems today. Don't wait until the 1st of January. Get a head start. It's the 12th of December. Get your ass into gear. Yeah,
1: I I agree with that, Rick. Yeah, I think it's good advice. I I used to do that. I'd always say, if I've got a New Year's resolution, I'm doing it the week before Christmas. There was just something psychologically about it. Like I need to get a head start on this one. Uh, Yeah, and on New Year's Day, I used to always force myself, no matter what I did New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, I'm getting up and I'm running. Because that was the best time of the year to run, Rick. The streets were completely empty. It was like a ghost world. And I love that. Like you, I'm a little bit of a loner at heart. (laughs) And I do like that kind of isolation. So I used to love New Year's Day for running. Uh, But Rick, we're going to get to the end of part one now. And I just wanted to leave listeners with maybe something actionable, uh, because in part two, I really want to go into the spiritual side of charity, what it means, where it comes from, what the Bible tells us about it, how we can enact it, how it's been warped and distorted and used against us. And uh, I want to talk about some of these mega philanthropists, Bill Gates. Yeah, they love their charity. So we'll talk about that in part two, Rick. But before we go, for listeners that are going to be ending uh, just in part one, Uh, Where do people start with charity? Is it something that you have to feel compelled to do or do you just get out there and do something, even if you don't feel it, even if it feels self-centered to begin with, like you're doing it for some kind of internal reward?
0: You will know in your own personal heart of hearts whether or not you're doing it for the right uh, reasons. In other words, am I doing this to be seen to be doing good or am I doing this because I genuinely care about this person or this cause? So everybody's different. The things that I might be motivated, the people I might be motivated to help and uh, support, you would look at them, what's he thinking? And vice versa, there might be people in your circle, I'd be like, "What, what the hell is he doing spending his time and effort with that person for? You will know that yourself. There's an old saying... Charity begins at home as well. And I think it's also worth remembering that even talking in the first part about mission fields and people always get when they hear the word missionary, they think, oh, it's somebody who travels to a far country to do the Lord's work. No, I say a missionary is someone that takes care of business in his own house. First and foremost, the first mission field of every man that's listening to this and every woman that's listening to this today should be your house. Your house should be your first mission field, then maybe your neighborhood, and then after that, possibly further afield if that's what you get called to do. So don't neglect even the people in your own house, Mike, because a lot of people run around helping others when the people that are living within their own house are struggling, they're struggling mentally, they're struggling physically, they're struggling financially, they're struggling spiritually, and we can be out there crusading, helping the rest of the world whilst neglecting the trouble and the needs that are in our own four walls. So Charity begins at home and after that, take it from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely beautiful, Rick. I was going to That up myself, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about it. But yeah, if you want to help someone, there's somebody probably very close to you that you can help right now, and it might just be a hug, it might just be asking them how their day was, it might be listening to them vent about their boss and their crap day. You know, you don't want to listen to it, but they need it, so you can listen to them give them that respite. And yeah, charity does begin at home and it's no use going out there into the world and being Mr. Do-gooder if everything falls apart back at your house because you didn't take care of business. Absolutely. What use would it have been for you, Rick, to go out on these trips and come home to a broken family? Absolutely zero. Not for you, not for your family, not for your kids. And I think you'd have regretted it. So I think the fact that you had their blessing and that you did it the right way is absolutely
0: critical when it comes to charity. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, I'll say this too, you know, for as much as, you know, you're painting me out, you said some very kind words about me at the start of the show about radio. And I'm telling you, you know, I've been out, I've done this and I've done that. You know, it's nothing special in my eyes. Other people think can be, you know, oh, that's amazing. But, you know, the first person, if you want to get an honest account, of who Rick Munn really is and what Rick Munn's really like behind the veneer, speak <laughs> to my wife. She could write uh, volumes on the real Rick Munn. So I'm just like everybody else. I'm a work in progress, Mike. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I'm trying to get a little bit better every day, but I am far from a, a good person or a, or a charity dynamo or a, a great evangelist. No, I'm just, a, I'm just a, a waste of space who's tried to do some good in his life, tried.
1: Well, that might be a future show, Rick. Rickman exposed with Rickman's wife and it might be on the parallel mic. Never.
0: (laughs) That'll be the end of my career.
1: (laughs) Okay, buddy. I'm going to leave it there for part one. In part two, we're going to come back and look at this from a very philosophical and spiritual perspective, Rick, because I think you're the man for it. And I really want to explore some of those Bible quotes that you've got too. So thank you so much for joining us, Rick. Where can people find you? Is there a way to reach out and connect with you?
0: Yeah, you can uh, send me a message uh, through my contact email, which is rickmon at tntradio.live. If you don't listen to TNT Radio, uh, you can download the app from the Google Play Store or the App Store. Just search for TNT Radio or check out our website, tntradio.live. We now do live streaming video as well as audio, so people can now watch the shows taking place rather than just listen to them. And if you use the X platform, although I'm using it less and less now, I have an account on there called No Risk, No Reward. Uh, You can hook up with me there and you can send me a DM or send me an email and I usually reply to people as long as they're not uh, disrespectful and offensive. And even then, I might still reply.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Rick, and I'll see you in part two. Well, that's it for part one, everyone. That was a fantastic first introduction to charity. However, in part two, we get into this one in a more in-depth way. Rick shares with us some personal stories of charity and how God has blessed him in his own life. And he gives a fantastic story about a time when he actually had to pray for some charity himself and he received it in a very supernatural and interesting way so that's a really important story to listen to if you want some inspiration that's the story to hear also we talk about charity in a much more broader perspective we talk about the franciscan monks we talk about some bible verses And we just try to give listeners a really good overview as to how spirituality and charity are so intertwined, irrespective of what faith you are. Charity should be at the heart of all of our lives and we all fall foul of not doing enough. But then also we have to be very careful not to do too much or not to be taken advantage of too. So we also talk about things like balance. So very actionable advice in part two that rick shares from his own experiences and i from my own so i look forward to seeing you all across there as members if you're not a member yet please consider joining us at parallelmike.com it's free for a month if you sign up annually so thank you so much for listening hope you're all well healthy and reasonably happy and like always i will see you all in the next one
0: What you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time,
1: peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women,
0: for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence is...